Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. I teach Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. And I'm Rosie Candlethal, and I'm currently doing the same at Columbia Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Rachel Wren and Paul Essa are off this month, but they'll be back before you know it. The first reading for September 3rd in the semi-continuous track is Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. And I must say, I'm a bit jealous that I didn't draw the straw on this one, because this is such a cool passage. Tim, you are up, though, to lead us through it. So how would you like to begin? Yeah, well, do feel free to jump in and ad-lib anywhere you want, Rosie. (laughs) This really is a great passage. It's a pivotal moment in the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. This is Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush. And hopefully we can encourage some preachers to pick this one up for their sermons. So uh, just by way of context, then, a, a good deal has happened in the first two chapters of Exodus. We covered some of it uh, in our conversation last week. The Israelites, living in Egypt as refugees from famine in their homeland, lost their privileged outsider status when a new Egyptian regime came to power. They were instead conscripted as laborers for the king, and to heap cruelty atop cruelty, the king of Egypt instituted a population control program among them via infanticide, so that the Israelites would not become powerful enough to resist their oppression. Moses, as an infant, survived that program, as we talked about last week, through miraculous circumstances and ended up, ironically, being raised in the king's own household by one of Pharaoh's daughters. Jumping then to his adulthood, Moses wrestles with his kind of dual identity, Egyptian and Hebrew, and in a moment of intense solidarity with his suffering brethren, actually kills an Egyptian who is mistreating an Israelite. Moses flees the legal ramifications of his act, finding himself in the wilderness where he begins a new life and a family as a nomadic herdsman. The drama. Somebody should make a movie of this guy's story, right? <laughs> right, right. So and if good. you can recruit Charlton Heston to play him, right? Yes, or well. get uh, DreamWorks animators involved, you might have a hit on your hands. <laughs> Seriously, though, this is dramatic storytelling mm-hmm. at its best. But really, Moses' story is still just getting going. And if his narrative arc is anything like the classic hero's journey, then we should expect some sort of inciting incident to call him out of the Mm. ordinary world and into a new adventure. Oh, you set us up, right? So that is the Burning Bush episode. Now, this Mm -hmm. might be a very familiar story to most of our listeners, but if you had to summarize what happens in Exodus 3 in just a few sentences, what would you say, Tim? Uh, Well, basically, God gets Moses' attention out in the wilderness with... A weird shrub on a mountain, Mount Horeb, a.k.a. Sinai, as it turns out. The shrub is flaming, but not burning up. I heard a a preacher once call it a butane bush. (laughs) Speaking to Moses from the flames, God announces that God has heard the Israelites' cries under the oppression of the Egyptians and has come to free them and lead them home. Moses himself is to be the bearer of this message. Uh, both to the Israelites and as their envoy to the king of Egypt. Moses has a series of objections to this whole idea, each of which God counters, and their back and forth on this takes us through the rest of chapter 3 and even on into chapter 4. 
Hmm. Right. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, God reveals the holy name, I am, to Moses, which is, you know, also a big moment. (laughs) Exactly. And, And I'll get to that in a moment. There's one other linguistic cultural issue earlier in the encounter that I that I want to highlight for listeners first, and that's that's way back in verse two. We tend to picture this scene as a direct encounter between Moses and God, and that's how I've framed it too. But I've had students point out to me that it actually says in verse two, "Vayera malach Adonai alav," an angel or a messenger of the Holy mm-hmm. One appeared to him. So, is this God or is this an angel? Always a fair question, especially with the Hebrew Bible, right? This is not the only time that angels are in the mix of divine encounters, right? Right, right. And here's my take on it, for what it's worth. The role of divine messengers or angels evolved over time. In some stories, God appears to people directly. But as time passed and culture shifted, divine human interactions were increasingly buffered by angelic middlemen or middle beings. (laughs) In the latest biblical texts, like Daniel and in the New Testament, these angels have names and even character personalities of their own, and the distinction between them and God is crystal clear in the story. But in earlier texts, that angelic buffer is much thinner, and the divine encounter is more direct. And I think that's what we have here in Exodus 3. Even though an angel is mentioned, this is still a direct encounter with God, just sort of a, a limited manifestation of God, not God in divine fullness, which would have killed Moses on the spot. So, quote unquote, angel is a way of saying that God manifested, became present to Moses in a, in a limited yet direct way. The encounter still required special treatment. Moses could only approach barefoot due to the holiness of the ground because of God's presence. But, you know, it was still walkable. <laughs> Well, it's really helpful to kind of get this image of a, of a middle space, a middle being, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the other thing maybe to add here is that the idea of angels as messengers facilitating that divine human interaction is based on the work done by human angels or messengers, malachim, right? So that, that thinness between the sender and the messenger can be seen entirely on the human level too. So for example, This is a great example. There's a scene in the book of Esther where there's a whole conversation between Mordecai and Esther that reads as if they're dialoguing in person. And yet, because of their different social statuses, Queen Esther and Mordecai, who's sort of still a regular common person, the conversation conversation actually happens at a distance and through messengers. But when Esther listens to and speaks to the messenger, it's direct. It's almost as if she's interacting with Mordecai himself. And I think that's sort of how many of these divine encounters with angels also work. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it too. Anyway, I hope that that helps some folks out there not trip over the strange introduction of an angel in this story. So, okay. So speaking of quirks in this text, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the revelation of the divine name in this story? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we jump right to that? So so now we're at verses 13 to 15, where Moses objects to God's instructions to him saying, okay, picture this. That's he may. Picture this. I'm telling the Israelites that their ancestral God has sent me and they say to me, oh yeah, what's that God's name? So what do I tell them? 
And that's actually kind of a strange question, isn't it? Like, especially as an objection out of Moses' mouth after God instructs him to lead the people out of Egypt. I think there's probably more going on here than Moses just asking for more information. My hunch is that this has to do with the power of a name in the ancient world. In this encounter, the deity clearly has the upper hand. Butane bush, holy ground, commanding voice. And Moses is perhaps seeking a little balance here, a little power of his own, specifically the power to invoke this deity at will. What name should I invoke so that I can demonstrate divine power when and where I want or need it? So Moses' question, I think, is tipping a little towards something like, how can I keep you under control? What name should I use to control your manifestation? And if we read it that way, I see God's answer as kind of an evasion of the question. What name? I am who I am. In other words, my name is my own business and you can't handle me with it. Hmm. I think what you're opening up to is a little window into an early window into Moses's character, something about who he is and what he maybe wants. Um, and you know, as you describe it too, it reminds me of that encounter between Jacob and God or an angel or a man. We're not sure exactly what's going on in that passage. Um, but that wrestling uh, in Genesis, after wrestling all night, Jacob also asks a very similar question. Tell me your name. And the divine being responds, why do you want to know my name? In other words, similarly, mind your own business. And in both of those conversations, it's almost a jockeying for control with the divine being. Hmm. That's a great connection to make. I, I do think something like that's happening here. By withholding the name, God maintains sovereign control over this encounter. And at the same time, here's the weirdest thing, right? Despite that sort of parry of mm. Moses' question, in the very next sentence, verse 15, God goes ahead and reveals the divine name, the, the tetragrammaton, spelled yod Hey vav Hey. It's weird because in the Hebrew, the withholding of the name and the revelation of the name are given with exactly the same sentence structure. Mm. You can actually see it in English too. Verse 14 says, thus you shall say to the Israelites, blank has sent me to you. Verse 15, thus you shall say to the Israelites, blank has sent me to you. Hmm. In verse 14, it's ehye, I am, the evasion. And in verse 15, it's the tetragrammaton, Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that sort of doubling of the line leads me to suspect that there's probably hmm. some editorial work going on at this juncture. Hmm. So you think maybe the line that reveals God's name may be a later editorial edition? I think that's at least plausible. Mm. Not that such a thing would invalidate it in the story. That's, that's not what I'm saying. When we think about editorial layers in a biblical text, we shouldn't assume that the earliest version is the best or most authoritative. It's the multi-layered version that's come to us as scripture. And I only highlight that layered quality of it to show that there's a conversation happening about the divine nature between the lines of this text. One author wants to emphasize God's control of this encounter, while another author wants to be clear that the God revealed here is none other than the Holy One of Israel, the mm. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And rather than a flat text that gives us just one or the other of those perspectives, 
we get that whole authorial dialogue in our received text. We get to eavesdrop on that. That's actually a lovely way of describing editorial layers in the text. Now, I noticed that you haven't been saying Yahweh when talking about the divine name. You keep mentioning the Tetragrammaton and using Adonai or the Holy One instead. Can you unpack that choice a little bit here? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that, Rosie. And I'd raise it as a kind of preaching pitfall, potentially. It can be tempting to latch on to this revelation of the divine name as the most significant part of this whole pericope and really run with it in a sermon. And I would actually caution against that for two main reasons. First, I don't think that is actually the most important thing happening in this story, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But also, folks should know that pronouncing the divine name is offensive or at least uh, considered irreverent in many Jewish communities, even going back to ancient times. Early on, it became customary when reading the biblical text to use uh, circumlocutions or substitute words to stand in for the divine name. Adonai, which means my Lord, Hashem, the name, or or, uh, HaKodesh, the Holy One so as to treat the name itself as ineffably holy. In our Hebrew Bibles, the tetragrammaton is spelled out consonantly, yod he vav he, but the vowel pointings from the medieval Masoretes point towards one or more of those circumlocutions, a kind of code in the text to prompt us to use a substitute name rather than trying to pronounce the name itself. And that's why, by the way, most English translations, uh, we, get, we get the word LORD, L-O-R-D, in all caps as a kind of substitution for this divine name. Right. And that brings us back to that principle you were talking about earlier, where maybe invoking a specific name offers a level of control over the named person or deity, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. R- refraining from pronouncing the divine name is a, is a kind of practice of reverence of giving God alone control over the personal divine name. And now, that's just one perspective on all this. And really, the issue is more complex than that, because there are other names for the biblical God besides the Tetragrammaton. Even the word God itself, which we might think of as a title more than a name, is sometimes used as a proper name for Israel's deity. So the whole thing can get pretty messy. But all that to say, Preachers may want to consider using one or more of those uh, circumlocutions out of solidarity with our Jewish neighbors. That's my own practice, and I'm I'm not suggesting that as an imperative. It's just an option to consider. In any case, uh, the pronunciation Yahweh, which is very common in modern biblical studies and in some Christian circles, is actually just one scholarly Mm -hmm. guess as to the the name's ancient pronunciation, and it could very well be wrong. And I'll just add, if you do use a circumlocution for the divine name, like Adonai, the Lord, the Holy One, that kind of thing, this would probably be a sermon where you'd want to spend a little time explaining that choice, since the revelation of the divine name is part of the actual story. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful um, nudge toward pastors as well, to kind of think about both the titles that we use and then also explaining to our congregations why. Um, so that's really helpful context, Tim. Thanks. Do you have, though, any other pitfalls or preaching angles that you want to offer listeners? Yes, one of each. 
So uh, the other uh, potential preaching pitfall that I'll mention briefly here, and I'll say more about in a future episode, is the characterization of the Egyptians as the evil bad guys in this uh, larger story of the Exodus. When we as preachers lean into that characterization, using Egypt and the Egyptians as an umbrella metaphor for evil oppression, there are some risks involved because, uh, surprise, surprise, there Hmm. are Egyptians in our world today. And as Africans and predominantly Arabs, the demonization of Egyptians in Western cultural readings of the Bible plays into a pattern of denigrating Africans and Arabs in our modern context. So it's important to keep that in mind and to recognize the humanity and dignity of the Egyptians and not simply caricature them as some sort of manifestation of evil in the biblical narrative. In sermons, you can perhaps approach this by focusing on individual antagonists like Pharaoh, you know, the king of Egypt, and emphasize that it's his oppressive abuse of power and status that's at issue, not his ethnic identity as an Egyptian. And and as a side note, I should credit Safwat Marzouk, uh, a fellow Hebrew Bible scholar and Presbyterian minister who's also Egyptian, for helping bring that feature to my attention. Uh, Safwat is also a past first reading guest and a friend of the podcast. So thanks, Safwat. Thank you, Safwat. And thank you, Tim, because I think that's a really important and really tempting uh, thing to do with these passages throughout Exodus is to just kind of paint with a, a broad brush over Egyptians forgetting mm-hmm. that there are Egyptians in our congregations. So, um, and to just remember um, to be, to be um, sensitive to the language that we use. Yeah. It's similar to the sort of knee-jerk anti-Semitism that we often encounter, w- while, you know, when dealing with the Pharisees in the New Testament, mm-hmm. similar dynamic in play. Well said. Um, other preaching angles. Yeah, yeah. For a preaching angle, uh, I would recommend that preachers pivot away from this whole name revelation thing. Although, you know, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) But I would recommend jumping to earlier in the pericope to find the heart of the matter. Uh, Verses 7 to 12 are really where it's at, in my view. God here is taking the initiative to recruit Moses because God has heard Israel's outcry. The theology presented here is of a God who hears and then who comes to rescue and a God who recruits helpers along the way. So there's a lot to preach in that. In addition, Moses' first objection to God's recruiting efforts is to doubt himself. (laughs) Verse 11 says, who am I that I should do this? I don't have what it takes. And God responds in verse 12, I will be with you. I mean... That is the heart of it. When God calls us to things that seem so far beyond our capability, I mean, what difference can we make in such a messed up world with the few and feeble resources that we bring to the table? This text is saying that the determining factor is not our limitations, but God's own presence with us. And I think that's a sermon that we need to hear over and over. Yes, I think it's a sermon I need to hear over and over again, too. It's (laughs) Moses does not appear to be the most likely candidate for such a big, big job. And as you've said, Tim, right, the point is exactly that, that it is, it's God's choosing and God's presence that allows Moses to be someone who helps to deliver the people out of Egypt. Hmm. Well, thanks, Tim, for helping us think through some of the tricky nuances in this famous story. My pleasure. 
All right, friends, that will bring us to the end of this week's episode. First Reading is produced by me and Tim, along with Dr. Rachel Wren and Paul Essa. You can find more info and all of our back episodes at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And thank you to those of you who are supporting the pod with your financial contributions. If you'd like to donate to help us keep this going, you can follow the link on our website. It also makes a huge difference when you recommend us to your friends, especially those preachers in your life. If you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that helps the algorithm. So please do that. But it's those personal recommendations that help build our listening community. Drop us a line at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or find us in the comments on our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethal. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.